Listener Production. This episode of the Future Women Leadership Series contains references to domestic and gendered violence. It was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. One of the ways we do this is through live events, like the Leadership Summit we held in March 2021. There is an incredible atmosphere when you're in a room of inspiring women, especially when they are there sharing their stories and leadership experience. In this series, I'm bringing you the highlights from that fantastic event. Leadership is a lot about persuasion and influence. So how do you get others to follow your lead? In this episode, we hear from a panel of female leaders who are experts at the art of persuasion. We find out where they learned their skills and their tips for influencing others. The panellists are Jess Miller, Councillor for the City of Sydney, Amani Haider, award-winning artist, advocate and writer, Anna Brown, human rights lawyer and founding CEO of Equality Australia, and Amanda Gilmore, former head of driver Australia and New Zealand at Uber. So let's jump into it. Jess, I'm going to start with you just because you're sitting next to me. You've worked alongside Clover Moore, who has ruled this part of the country since 2004 and is the longest serving Lord Mayor. What makes her so persuasive? She has a very clear sense of who she is. She has a very clear set of values and she's very consistent. When you're kind of hanging out with her and, you know, door knocking with her is I highly recommend that experience. You've never seen anyone move quite so fast or more forcefully bang at a door. I think what makes her so good at what she does is is she's just, she's got deep roots. She's like a tree that is unwaving in uh, what she believes in and, and, you know, she believes it and therefore you believe it, which is not to say that she doesn't consider other points of view, but there's a very clear sense of what's right and wrong and sense of justice and care that sort of guides everything she does. You're similar in that sense. You often tell the story about accidentally finding yourself in local government. And that's because you also have a strong sense of right and wrong and became a grassroots campaigner. Tell us a little bit about that and your own ability to be persuasive. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think at the same time, I guess you've got a clear sense of what's right and wrong and and what you believe in. You also do evolve as a human being in terms of how you express that. So, yes, in my 20s, I definitely was chaining myself onto, um, you know, essential coal infrastructure and shutting down coal house because I really felt that that was the only avenue available to me to make change. It's pretty exhausting doing that after a while. Like it's pretty lonely and sometimes you just want to win. Um, So over time, I guess I've also found different ways and become a little bit more sensitive to how to make change, but also do it in a way with other people that's fun, where people can see the relevance and feel like they're invited and a part of it. So I guess over time, the values really haven't shifted, but the vibe has and the tactics have become a little bit better, I hope. Anna, you have a track record of being pretty persuasive as well. Tell us what about those principles that Jess had said appeal to you? I agree with a lot of what Jess said. I mean, in my experience, and I've sort of been on the other end 
uh, working in politics for a minister as an advisor and being lobbied to. And then I think that makes you a much more effective advocate on the outside. But using the case study of the marriage equality campaign, for example, when you look back to 2004, we had sort of less than 40% of Australians supported equality and supported change on that issue. And what changed between then and 2017 when we had the national vote was the work of so many activists and the really important work of building coalitions for change, as Jess said. So getting together groups of like-minded people and planning and organising and having those conversations that turn an issue from a what to a who. And I know we'll get onto storytelling, but that's what really uh, changes hearts and minds is as soon as people know that you're not talking about abstract notions of right, wrong, or even the law and what needs to change in the law, but you're talking about your neighbour, your workmate, your sister or your brother, and that's what actually reaches in and changes people's hearts and minds. You've looked at campaigns post-marriage equality as well. That's not the only campaign that you've had to win over an audience. Have you used the same principles around storytelling? I mean, I'm a lawyer by training. Um, For me, campaigning is something I've learnt over the years. I'm not a professional, I'm not a communications professional, but I have learnt, you know, the importance of knowing your audience. So my particular style is always constructive engagement. It's, but you need the people out there on the streets you know, angry and outrage are really important as well. But you need someone that can speak the same language as the decision maker. And in the case of marriage equality, or indeed, a lot of my campaigns have been successful under coalition governments. And you need to be able to speak to a liberal politician in their language using their values. So that language changes depending on who you're talking to, if that makes sense. But it's also convincing that politician that it's worth the expenditure of their political capital or that there'll be political pain if they don't do what you're trying to convince them to do. So it's that political calculation as well. Amani, what principles do you think are most important in winning over an argument or winning over an adversary in an argument? So I'm also a lawyer by profession, but I'm currently not practising. But I've used the persuasion skills that I used as a litigation solicitor since then in my advocacy around gender-based violence. And I think the most important or the most valuable skill that I've been able to draw on is knowing how to combine facts and research with my lived experience, because when you have both, you can tell quite a compelling story. I do want to notice, however, that a lot of what comes across as persuasive depends as well on power relationships and dynamics. So I was listening to a podcast recently where one of the persuasion principles that the man referenced was likability and not everybody has the privilege of likability or being relatable to the majority of people that they're around or even access to the types of knowledge and training that we can leverage when we are persuasive. So I'm mindful of the limitations that affect my own persuasiveness in a public conversation and in a public setting, as well as the expectations that I have of other people. Amanda, consistency. Would you would you say consistency is an important quality in someone if they're going to be persuasive? I think so. I think that one of the biggest things in persuasion is knowing your own brand of what feels right 
in how you choose to be persuasive. The way that I choose to do that at work is very different than some of my colleagues. And that's something that I've had to get comfortable with over time is that I am softer spoken than some of my male colleagues. I am quieter in meetings than some of my male colleagues, but I can still be persuasive. So I think acknowledging that, being comfortable with that, and then being consistent with that, you actually, hopefully if you're in a situation where people can get to know you and that consistency actually goes really far because people understand your brand of persuasion over time and actually react favorably to it. How do you respond when it's just not working? Like you're throwing everything at it and you're not winning people over to the argument. I think there's a few different ways to do that. I think, you know, taking a step back and really trying to understand what about your argument is not working and maybe changing up the narrative is is a big one. Like some stories resonate really quickly and well with other people and some do not. So I think it's going back to the drawing board and thinking about, okay, what elements of this story aren't speaking to my audience or how am I not speaking in their language and, and trying to refresh that. I also think bringing other people into the mix can be a good way of changing up that narrative and changing up whatever story you're trying to tell to get to the end result. Jess, is it in some ways harder when you're coming from a political platform to kind of be persuasive because people uh, potentially have made up their mind about you and what you might say? Oh, yeah. I think um, the weird thing about being in politics is it's sort of once you wear your political stripes, it's really hard to repaint them another colour. And there is a sense of taboo in this country sometimes when you sort of put yourself forward in a political sense that... um, there are a set of expectations that come with that. But at the same time, you, you also have to realise that not everybody's going to like you and you've got to have the courage to piss people off. If there's an issue that you really believe in and you think it's the right thing to do, my favourite, you know, talk to me about parking in trees. Oh, my God. Like people know on council that I'm not the person that you come to when you need to complain about car parking because my personal feelings and my personal values about car parking is that it's a fairly maligned use of public space and resource. And I personally, given that we're in a climate situation, would rather have a tree there. I know that people who feel differently, I will never persuade them. And I think partly you've kind of got to cut your losses and go, I'm okay with that. At the beginning, I think I tried to sort of please everybody and I just realised that, you know what, it's not worth it. Like you're not only not being true to yourself and your values, but people can smell when you're not being completely upfront with them. Amanda, you're the only one working in a company in a corporate structure. How much courage does it take to stand up for your values and take on an issue that might not be popular in an organisation? I think it takes a lot of courage. I think it's one of the hardest things to do, to be honest. Um, And I think going into those situations where you know it's going to be contentious, you have to just be comfortable with the idea that you're not going to get everyone on side. You're not going to be liked by everyone. Um, And I think that takes a lot of courage. And, And the best thing I think you can do in that situation is finding your allies so that you don't feel like you have to go at it alone and you have people in the room that are going to back you, give you space, let you breathe, add their voices to the mix. Because I think on those really hot debates, it can be a really intimidating situation for many. 
And one of the challenges um, for many women, and, you know, this is from personal experience, is that being liked is kind of my thing. I like people to like me. So have you had that challenge in the workplace? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that I've been working on and had to get comfortable with is finding my voice because I was so worried about being liked. And I still am very worried about being liked. But I I do think that is something that a lot of people feel that pressure and it feels really uncomfortable and you're hyper aware of it. I, I had a, our head of legal said that to me the other day. You know, she was like, it's okay if not everyone likes you. That's totally fine. Um, she said that to yeah. you. And I was like, okay. All so, oh, right. Okay. Who knew? Like who doesn't like yeah, it? Name them. Yeah, exactly. Who is it? Who is it? Um, but yeah, it, it's, I think it's a journey. Like I, I do think it just takes time and practice to get to that place where you feel okay with it. I'm just going to interrupt there to highlight two points. Firstly, Anna's focus on how important it is to speak the same language as the decision makers and Amanda's advice of understanding your own brand and what you bring to the table. As I said on the panel, I've also fallen into the trap of wanting to be liked, just like Jess and Amanda were talking about when we left off. So I wanted to know how Anna, with all her campaigning and political advocacy, has coped with negative feedback when there are strong emotions at play. Yeah, I've I've got a bit of that issue as well and conflict avoidance. And it's something that I, you know, I think being aware of it is the first step. Certainly returning back to politics, there's been times where I've, you know, had to pause before I hit send on a media release going, government's really not going to like me when I say this. But I think it comes a bit back to Amanda's point about consistency. And um, I would add building trust and credibility. So Um, If you have the respect of someone, even if they don't like you, I know that's a cliche, but if you build your um, reputation or track record speaks for itself as a credible advocate that has a set of principles or set of values that you stand by. And um, in politics anyway, people, even on other sides of politics, they respect their counterparts and they respect you as an advocate if you are doing your job, which is to defend and fight for your constituency. In that case, it's LGBTIQ plus people. So I can very, you know, with a smile on my face say, look, my community is not going to be very happy about this. I'm going to have to say a few things. And a politician, you know, will respect me for that, I think, because at the end of the day, that's my job. Amani, if you can build trust, you don't need anything else much to go with it. You can win over an argument. No, I think you need other things with it. It's nice to be liked, it's nice to be trusted, but it feels better and is more important to be authentic and values-driven, as you mentioned. And you begin to learn quite quickly that although likability has a social currency and a persuasiveness factor, um, it's not necessarily going to make or break and it might not be the most important thing in what you're doing. I had to learn very quickly after losing my mum to domestic violence in 2015 that sometimes principles are much more important than not rocking the boat or being liked. And that involved initially getting used to the idea that I would have to give evidence as a witness in my dad's trial against him to face family members and call out their behaviour. And then later on as an advocate to write about my experiences, speak about them publicly, knowing that often there are people in the room who will not agree 
there will be patriarchy offended at a national level. There will be patriarchy offended within my own community. There will be people who, and this has happened, don't think that my opinion on feminism or violence against women is even valid because I'm a visibly Muslim woman. So I was very acutely aware of how difficult each of those barriers would be and I had to quickly sort of think about how much likability would actually serve me in this situation and how much it meant to me to be liked versus how much it meant to me to stand up and speak about what's right and tell my mum's story and keep telling it until we see substantive change. And so similar to, I guess, Jess, I think made the point originally, storytelling is the is the core of what you go to in order to amplify your messages. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was somewhat let down as a lawyer, let down by the legal system going through my dad's trial and feeling that parts of my mum's truth uh, weren't given space to surface in that arena. And I started considering other ways to have this conversation with the public in a way that was in my control and felt safe to me. And so I do storytelling through visual art. I entered the Archibald Prize and was a finalist in 2018. And that really showed me how you can um, shift mediums and tell stories in different ways to different audiences and the power of that moment and the number of people that it connected with. And the fact that it gave me more satisfaction or a different kind of satisfaction to what the legal process had given me was really eye-opening for me. And now writing the rest of that story and filling in those gaps has also been rewarding in that sense as well. But in that, you must have found enormous amount of courage yourself to dig into those stories and tell it. And we've been talking about this now for a little while. That in itself must put enormous pressure on you. Yeah, of course. There's the physical and emotional aspect of revisiting trauma regularly and making sure that you continue to exercise um, self-care within that process, that you continue to uh, check in with yourself and make sure that you're doing that in a way that's um, constructive rather than harmful to yourself. Otherwise, you can't continue and you burn out pretty quickly. It's also difficult because when you haven't had closure or you feel that the system is still against you or that change is happening really, really slowly, you're sitting with a lot of anger and that's okay. I don't have a problem with anger at all. We need it. But you're sitting with it for long periods of time and really challenging yourself to turn it into creative output or storytelling or a product that other people can find accessible and learn from. So it is definitely a difficult process, but... For me, it's been really worthwhile. Jess, I started with you and talking about a, a woman who's had, you know, extraordinary success in persuading people to her viewpoint and, and winning pretty much every argument she takes on. Tell me, what have you learned in your time in public office and where are you going? What's the plan? <laughs> God, I wish I knew, Helen. <laughs> I think I ask you that every time I see you. I know, Not normally on stage, but... Oh, what have I learned? I think one of the things I've learned from Clover, apart from being very consistent and having values-based leadership, she's a pretty great listener and she gets out there. She doesn't sort of lead from a kind of special little pedestal locked away in town hall. Like you, you see her out in the street all the time. So I think listening is what I've probably learnt too and not sort of 
coming at things from my own preconceived point of view and having the flexibility to shift and do that in a way with the sense of humility to say, listen, I'm wrong. I've learned how to say, forgive me a lot. Like, forgive me, I said this thing, that was not the intention. And that's been a real revelation because not only do you feel better, but you also have that opportunity to reopen a conversation and actively learn from it. Um, I think, I don't know, it's pretty tough. Like, I don't know what to do next. I really like politics. Um, I love the job, but yeah, it's tough. I think as an independent, you're kind of trying to figure out where to go because there does, like local government, I feel, should be almost like the training grounds and like a pipeline of talent where you get to dip your foot in, see if you like it and then grow. But yeah, I, I don't know that that is necessarily open to me at this point in time. Amanda, do you ever go, yep, I got it wrong, I'm sorry? I'm just take, picking up on Jess's point about, do you ever feel like one of the ways to kind of reframe a problem is to say, I got that wrong, you know, I, did, I said the wrong thing. Is that a technique that you have used and would recommend? Yeah, I think humility and empathy, it's like that is one of the best ways to actually connect with the people that you're trying to have a conversation with, persuade them. That's definitely been my experience. I, I have no problem doing that. And I think that leading in that way also is great for the people around you to show them that it's totally fine to make mistakes. You know, people are going to say the wrong thing and they're going to have to acknowledge that and, and learn from it. And I, I think that pretending like that doesn't happen really serves no one at all. So yeah, I think it's, it's key to the whole puzzle for sure. Anna? Did you do anything that didn't really work during the marriage equality debate or did you did pretty much most of your arguments land from the outset? I mean, people might remember the text message that went to the whole of Australia. <laughs> we got some negative feedback about that. But in the end, that led to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people updating their enrolments. So, I mean, that wasn't my call, but that whole campaign was an exercise in me for taking responsibility for things that I might not have necessarily been... <laughs> Um, the decision maker on and everyone had an opinion on strategy. So um, yeah, of course we made mistakes. And then in campaigning, you learn that you just have to be very quick and you have to make decisions much more quickly, react to the environment. And that means making the wrong decision now and then. But hopefully it's not so wrong that you can't correct and you learn from your mistakes. To, to pick up another one of Jess's points, how hard was it for you then to listen at times? The hardest time was just after the announcement was made about the postal survey and everyone panicked. We, we were not expecting it. It was a blind side. I, was, I had to launch proceedings. We're in the high court fighting it, but at the same time we were scaling up so quickly and there was so much panic that people expected decisions to be made very quickly. We employed Tim Gartrell, very experienced campaign director, and he said, people are going to get very nervous very quickly, 20% of our time is going to be dealing with friendly advice, questions, and people thinking we're not moving quickly enough. And we just have to take some time to get the foundations right. So it was that, that was probably the most difficult time, the first couple of weeks after they announced that it was actually happening. And also in a way where our, our hands were tied behind our back, it wasn't a fair fight. We were running the legal proceeding. And I mean, it was just, 
crazy looking back that we had to do it in the way that we did. I hope you're writing a book on all that. <laughs> There's me. I'm too busy to write a but book. But not a great publisher. <laughs> um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up with one final question um, to you all. If you needed to use the best of your persuasive principles right now, what would it be that you'd want to persuade someone? What is the thing that is bothering you at the moment that you would like to persuade a boss, a friend, the country, the room? It's an open-ended question of money. I reckon you can, you can handle this question off the bat. I think I'd go back to what I was saying earlier. If your feminism is not intersectional, then it's not good enough. And if you don't understand what that means, you have every opportunity to research it and challenge yourself and get on board. I knew you'd be able to handle that question quickly. Um, Amanda? I kind of, I don't want to, Steal what you just said, but I really, really agree with that. I think that I'm very persuasive. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you're very persuasive. Exactly. I I think that that is just the thing that everyone needs to be persuaded to pay attention to and to think about and expand their horizons and do the research to understand what exactly that means. And and I think that that's even been my takeaway from today, without a doubt. Um, so there's there's lots of things I'm sure we'd all love to persuade people on, but I think that's an overarching one that would be excellent that everyone could benefit from. Absolutely. Nicely said. Jess? If I had a magic wand, I would use it to persuade, I guess, the institutions to kind of get with the program. Like I find it incredibly frustrating that we live in a world that is dynamic and complex and empathetic and human, yet the decision-making structures that govern us and to an extent control us are still very linear, very hierarchical, incredibly slow. So I think I'd advocate really hard for radical empathy combined with um, participatory models of democracy and citizens' juries because I think it's empowering and the, the solutions that we could come to through that way of doing things would serve everybody as opposed to kind of keep these power structures and reinforce these power structures that just they're not working. Anna? I would add patriarchal as well. Um, I'll draw on a couple of themes and say I mean for me after marriage equality it was really important that we don't let those groups that were really viciously targeted by the no side behind and particularly for trans people and particularly going to the point around intersectional feminism, I would encourage all the women in the room to think that trans women and gender diverse people don't diminish our sense of womanhood. They actually really nourish it and they make it richer and we need to make space for their voices and we need to make sure that given the smaller numbers and I think they're for trans people, they're kind of where gay and lesbian people were maybe five years ago and we absolutely need to lift up their voices. So that's my job at the moment. That's what I see as my key focus and I certainly encourage everyone out there to do what they can to support the more gender diverse uh, perspectives and the trans women among them. Very wise words to finish on and thank you so much to all four of you for taking the time to take on this panel and this kind of tricky topic really in many ways. So thank you all one and all and um, big round of applause. Big round of applause. And remember that was from one of our live events and you can become part of the movement 
by signing up at futurewomen.com. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, executive producer Jenny Goggin, sound production by Darcy Thompson. Thompson.